The, the tax burden isn't just about the level of tax, it's also about the complexity and the uncertainty around those taxes. So the national insurance has been up, down, up, down, um, as have various types of business taxes over the last few years. And uh, the politicians making promises on, on, on one tax that they then break or um, constrains their ability to do other things. So there's an awful lot of uncertainty about fiscal policy and tax in particular at the moment, which is very unhelpful, particularly for businesses, given the uncertainty that creates for their, for their decisions. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt claimed this week to reject big government, high spending and high tax in the autumn statement. He announced the permanent instruction of the full expensing to boost business investment, a cut to national insurance that will put £450 back into the pockets of the average worker. And yet the Office of Budget Responsibility Analysis reveals that the tax burden is still set to increase to the highest in 70 years, while significant new commitments were made in respect to pensions and benefits. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh, and I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalizing policy question. Today's question, does the autumn statement end big government? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by the IEA's own Julian Jessup. Uh, Julian is an independent economist as well as an economics fellow here at the IEA. Um, he's a prolific writer and contributor um, on the state of the economy, public finances, and monetary economics, um, and he's former chief economist here at the IEA. Welcome back to the podcast, Julian. Thank you. Good to see you again. Well, what are your top line takeaways from the autumn statement? What did you make of it? Well, first of all, I thought it was quite a good effort. It, it achieved a, a lot of things. It sort of pulled a lot of levers in the in the right direction, and a sort of a piece of technocratic economics I thought it was it was pretty well done um however there are lots of like big elephants in the room that we need to address um the first of course is that the the tax burden is still increasing so if the aim is to reduce the size of the state then maybe he made a small step in the right direction yesterday but the the direction of travel is still towards um you know much much bigger state than we had before um and with some other underlying problems as well. I mean, the the second big problem is the lack of economic growth. Um, mm. the growth forecasts were revised down yesterday. That that was partly because the starting point was a bit better than we thought. Um, a big up revision to GDP between 2020 and 2022. But um, if you look beyond the headlines, uh, per capita GDP growth was basically going to be none at all for for a couple of years. Um, the outlook for public spending, I mean, I'm, I'm keen on public spending being controlled, but there are actually some quite big cuts in there in real terms. And there are questions about whether that's a, a credible commitment for this government or maybe for the for the next one. And then finally, a lot of this is in, underpinned by um, very high migration. I mean, without the, the big increase in uh, net immigration to the UK from abroad that we saw confirmed in the data on Thursday morning, um, the growth numbers will be even weaker and the public finances potentially even worse. So the, there's lots of big problems below the surface that, you know, a couple of small tax cuts don't really do anything to solve. OK, so I want to keen to come back to some of those topics. But before we do that, um, let's dive into some of what uh, we make of the specific details. So I think the, the premise of uh, the autumn statement was this good news from the Chancellor, at least in his mind, which is um, a, a kind of stronger than expected public finances. He had more room 
to play with. And what was wondering what you 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 kind mm. of if you can explain that concept to us. Why does why is there suddenly more money than the chance of thought he might have otherwise had? Okay, well, the, the single most important reason why there's more money for the chance to play with is inflation has been higher than anticipated. And ironically, inflation is actually quite good for the public finances. Um, I mean, there are some downsides. It means that spending on certain types of benefits are higher and you know, debt interest payments are higher as well. But it also raises a lot more revenue uh, for the chancellor because uh, incomes, prices and, and in particular wages are, are higher than the OBR had been anticipating. Uh, and in particular, that's raking in a lot of money through something called fiscal drag. Now, this is because the uh, the Chancellor and his predecessor in the job, Rishi Sunak, decided to freeze the personal allowances, the, the thresholds at which you start paying income and also national insurance. Um, so the government is getting in a lot more money from the fact that people are earning more in cash terms than the OBR had been anticipating. Um, so what he's done is to give some of that back, not not all of it, but but some of it. So, so, so it's kind of uh, interesting here. So he's got this larger than expected uh, revenue inflow, um, and then he's basically giving that back in a, in a few different ways. So the first way, uh, which is something that a, a lot of um, economists are welcoming, is this introduction of permanent full expensing. Now that's apparently, according to the government, got a, a nine or 10 billion pounds a year um, cost to the treasury, although I think that's in the short run and the longer run doesn't cost as much. I wonder if you can explain what, what is permanent uh, uh, full expensing and, and what, what kind of impact could that have? Okay, well, full expensing is basically a policy that allows companies to offset certain types of investment, not all types of investment, but certain types of investment against tax, uh, particularly investment in, in plant and, and machinery. Um, and it's a policy that you know, many people have been advocating for years. I think pretty much every free market think tank at some point has signed up to it. But it's something that's accepted widely across the political spectrum as a as a good thing to do. Um, the policy was initially introduced only on a on a temporary basis uh, for, for three years, if I recall correctly. Um, which was better than nothing, but does create problems because what it meant was that a lot of companies were sort of rushing investment. So it's bringing forward investment, but not encouraging them to, to do things permanently. Um, and also it might have meant that you know some marginal projects are actually being undertaken that probably shouldn't be done at all. It's much better to make it a permanent regime, uh, which is what he's finally decided to, to do now. But this is also a good example of him only giving back part of what he's taken away because, of course, um, he's also a year ago raised the the main rate of corporation tax from 19% to to 25%, and that's a far bigger tax increase than the tax cut he's announced with making full expensing permanent. So this is another good example of yes, it's the it's one of the biggest cuts in corporation tax we've ever seen, but it follows an even bigger increase. Um, so overall, you know business community is still worse off and investment is still likely to be lower than it would otherwise have been. So, so the uh, interesting thing I'm finding about full expensing is that it, it is uh, a lot of groups are kind of declaring mission accomplished, but there is a little bit further that can be gone. You, you made that point there that doesn't actually apply to every single type of investment um, and, and it will mean they can immediately run off uh, sometimes. Do you, are you ever going to think of what is not covered by it and, and potentially would you make an argument that in the longer run it should be that it, it, you should treat any kind of investment, be it buying a computer or building a big factory as an immediate write-off to your tax, rather than having to do it over a longer period of time and a cost being associated with that? 
Yeah, I mean, that, that is part of the problem with any of these sort of tax breaks. Unless you apply them to all types of investment, then there's quite a bit sort of dead weight of, of distortions on top of that. Bias. It helps yeah. some some companies to invest or directs investment into one type of activity rather than another, which which isn't a good thing. Um, my own preference, by the way, would be actually simply to have not raised corporation tax in the first place and keep it really, really simple. So you just have a lower rate of, of, of corporation tax rather than a complicated system of investment allowances on top of that. But if you are going to have these uh, tax rate specifically investment i think they should apply to all sorts of investment not just particular types of plant and machinery as we're seeing at the moment and the um the good news is that the chancellor has actually announced a consultation um on those allowances and it it might be that there's something that he'll look at again at some point is to get rid of some of those allowances um to broaden the scope of the of the tax break uh, which obviously would 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 cost more money in the short term, but as you hinted, actually in the longer term, uh, the cost of these measures is far less. Um, partly because they replace an existing set of, of of capital allowances, but also because the investment itself you know, boosts the economy, boosts jobs, mm. boosts income, and raises effect. more tax in other ways. So going back to, to what is a bit more retail politics, which is the mm. the chancellor's. Uh, rabbit out of the hat, which is not the, the 1p reduction in national insurance, the 2p reduction in national insurance. Now, I think there's a certain irony here that Rishi Sunak, when he was chancellor, tried to put up um, with the health and social care levy national insurance mm-hmm. by was at 1.25% on both sides. Then that got withdrawn um, under the, the short-lived trust regime and now uh, and never brought back. And now it's going down even further. Um, I'm wondering what, what you make of that as, as, an, as a yeah. tax policy well first of all you've actually touched on a, a very important point which is that the, the tax burden isn't just about the level of tax it's also about the complexity and the uncertainty around those taxes so the national insurance has been up down up down um, as have various types of business taxes over the last few years and uh the politicians making promises on on, on one tax that they then break or um, constrains their ability to do other things. So there's not a lot of uncertainty about fiscal policy and tax in particular at the moment, which is very unhelpful, particularly for businesses, given the uncertainty that creates for their their decisions. Um, In terms of uh, national insurance specifically, I think it did make sense to to cut national insurance rather than than income tax. Um, That's partly because National insurance, by and large, is a is a tax paid by by workers, so it's better targeted at you know making work pay, uh, whereas income tax is levied on other forms of of, of income. Um, it's also because actually because it's a bit better targeted a one p or a two p cut on income tax on national insurance actually costs a little bit less than an equivalent cut on on income tax. So wearing my old hat as a treasury official, I would slightly prefer to cut national insurance than mm-hmm. uh, than income tax. And of, um, course, of course, ideally here, you'd, you'd uh, abolish national insurance altogether and combine it into either income tax system. It doesn't really make sense to tax labour separately, depending on what age you are, when it's it's not in any way connected. It's not national insurance. It's just a tax. If there's no pot of money that's being created by national insurance. It, 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 if, it, exactly. if you tried to sell an insurance product called national insurance, um, you'd have deceptive yeah. conduct uh, issues yeah. with the CMA, I suspect. And, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's also really messy. He, he did actually make one small improvement this week, which is he got rid of, you know, one class of national insurance altogether, a sort of... Um, a lump sum charge every single week that self-employed people have to pay 
Um, so we now have a, a slightly simpler national insurance system, but it's still pretty complicated. It applies at a different rate to different types of income. Uh, and in some cases, older people can can avoid it completely. So it's it's a messy tax. Uh, and in line with the general principle of keeping things simple, yes, I, I would agree with the longer term objective of simply merging national insurance and, and income tax. Um, I, I guess one reason why people are reluctant to do that is that it would mean that the, the new rate of tax, whatever it would be, would have to be higher than the existing tax. So even though all you're doing is combining two taxes, inevitably it will be seen by some people as a, a sort of stealth tax or a new yeah i mean it would have distributional consequences as well because it, it would it, it would mean lower taxes for workers potentially higher taxes for retirees who have um other forms of income coming in i'm interested just moving on though to uh, the other the government's kind of other key theme of of the budget which is a, this this around um welfare and work so there have mm -hmm. been several announcements around trying to strengthen work capability tests try and get people off welfare, which is a huge um, increasing fiscal burden, as well as you could argue a social burden that you've got millions more people um, out of the workforce or unemployed um, in the post-COVID world. Um, and also at the same time, the government putting up the benefits uh, in line with inflation was 6.5%. Um, I'm wondering what you make of, of this effort of, of get back to work as a theme. I think it's absolutely essential. Um, one of the, the ways that the UK economy has performed particularly poorly over the last few years is that you know, lots of people have basically dropped out of the labour force during COVID and, and haven't returned uh, for, for a number of reasons. But you know, part of it is simply about the incentive to work um, not being strong enough. Now, you can, you can tackle that in, in a number of ways. Um, one is to, to make work itself more attractive and... Um, you can do that, for example, by cutting the tax on employment income to make sure that people take home more of the money than they than they would otherwise have done. Um, that is part of the justification for raising the national minimum wage, though I, I do have concerns there that the recent increase may be just a little bit too big and stretching the limits too far of what businesses can afford. So it's partly about a sort of, you know, um, a carrot, if you like, to, to make work uh, more attractive. But I think also sometimes it has to be about the stick and there's been an extraordinary increase in the number of people who are uh, on benefits and, and, and not working for, for one reason or another. But uh, disability is an important part of that, in, including, unfortunately, an increase in the number of people with, with mental health problems. Um, but one of the sort of silver linings of the, the big change in the labour market post-COVID is the increase in the number of people who uh, are now working from home or can work from home. Uh, and that might be an opportunity for many people who are disabled and perhaps not able to go into an office or, or work in the in the way that used to be traditional to actually start to work again. Um, so there are incentives now in place to, to do that. Um, and on top of that, there are inevitably always some people in the labour market who you know would simply rather take a, a benefit check from the government rather than rather than work. So a little further tightening of the sanctions regime there, I think, is something that's quite reasonable. So you've, you've um, briefed the motion there, but I'm interested in unpacking this point about the minimum wage, mm. which is has probably gotten less attention than it deserves. So, I mean, uh, of course, the minimum wage is a relatively new phenomenon in the UK. Um, it was only introduced in, in 1997 um, by the Blair government. And I think there was a, it was a bit of an intention at the time to keep the minimum wage at a level that was pretty much affordable by businesses, um, but also something that was balanced with the, the need to um, ensure that you, you don't have 
excessively low pay. Um, and that was the low pay commission process. The, mm. the government, of course, flipped on this into the what's the, called the, the national living wage, which is kind of arbitrarily working towards 60% of median income. Now, this is now the government's gone even further on this and said the national living wage will apply to anyone above 21. And they've also accepted a quite significant increase, almost 10% increase. I wonder what you think the, the potential risks are of that large jump in the middle wage. Because I think a lot of people have said, uh, if you try to debate this point with them, they'll say, whoa, 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 you know, we've heard this all before about the minimum wage. It hasn't led to a significant level of unemployment. We heard this in 1997. It didn't happen then. Why, why was it going to happen now? What is the risk? Well, I think, yeah, the, the important thing is to acknowledge the, the trade-offs. Um, and obviously, the large increase in the national minimum wage or living wage uh, will benefit a, a lot of people. And there's going to be a substantial chunk of people who are actually still going to see their real incomes increase next year. Um, even though many others will, will be seeing them fall. So um, it is clearly a boon for those people who are going to receive that wage and, and remain in their job. Um, but there are various trade-offs here. I mean, one is that um, I think actually the target is to raise it to two-thirds of, of, of median earnings, um, which is pretty much stretching the limit of, of what many smaller businesses in particular will be able to afford. Um, so at a point when those smaller businesses are already struggling with other costs, um, given the, the, the global cost of living crisis and rising energy prices and business rates and so on and so on, uh, we might be reaching the point where with the labour market already starting to turn, then we might start to see some quite significant job losses as a result of the, the national minimum wage being, being where it is. Um, the second concern I would have is what this might mean for for inflation or more precisely for monetary policy. Um, rightly or wrongly, the, the Bank of England is, is paranoid about the risk of a, of a wage price spiral. So the fact that the national minimum wage is going up by, by 10%, um, and it won't just be people on the national minimum wage who are getting big raises as a result of this. There'll be people just above the national minimum wage who will expect to see the pay differentials maintained. So this will add to the, the headline wage numbers. And you know, given the Bank of England's concerns about inflation, that might mean that interest rates remain, remain higher for longer. Uh, the final point you, you touched upon this is, is whether or not it's appropriate to have a lower minimum wage for, for younger workers. Now, a lot of people struggle with this idea because they say, you know, why should somebody who's contributing the same amount be paid less just because they are 18 or 20 rather than, rather than 25? Um, that slightly misses the point because the thing about the national minimum wage is it's not a it's not a ceiling it's a floor so if an 18 year old is genuinely contributing as much as a 25 year old then of course the employer will pay them the same um, there's no economic incentive to do anything different the reality though is that younger workers do tend to be more expensive to employ um, because they are you know, less well trained or they require more training, they have less experience. So it's always been accepted that it makes sense to have a lower wage for, for the youngest workers. Allow people to get onto the employment ladder, climb up, build skills, don't cut off the lower rungs. And I think it's, it's a similar situation as well, where the risk is not only uh, reduction in employment, but also reduction in hours. Mm. Um, also, I think a bit of a risk for lower skilled workers, mm. which tend to be you know, the least productive and therefore... And businesses will, might struggle to pay these higher wages. Particularly, yeah, as you say, particularly if they are the younger workers, because the increase for them, if I recall right, is more than 20% in, in the national mm. wage. So that makes it now significantly more expensive than it was before to employ a, a younger person. Now, 
the the saving grace here might still be that you know the economy is sufficiently strong and there are enough labor shortages that companies will be paying these higher wages anyway. Um, but if that were the case, why do we need the government to intervene and you know raise them through a national minimum wage system? Uh, which applies across the board rather than simply allowing employers themselves to, to work out in which areas they can afford to pay people more and do that and leave wages elsewhere at the existing So Julian, an, another major announcement um, in the order statement where, where the government talk about 110 supply side measures. I'm not sure if there's a full list here, but there does seem to be quite a lot of associated documentation about mm. things like pensions regulation reform, speeding up infrastructure um, delivery, talk about the growth duty on regulators. I wonder what, what you make of uh, what the government's trying to do on, on the supply side economy. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm really pleased to see that. Um, I mean, some people have suggested if you've got 110 separate policies, then really you don't have one at all. You know, they're just sort of nibbling away at the, at the, at the margins, not really making any difference. But I would give the government a little bit more credit than that. So, you know, some of the areas in particular that I look at, you know, financial markets um, uh, and capital markets more generally, I think there's, there's some decent stuff going on there. Um, planning reform, um, they seem to be taking that a little bit more seriously again, just, just little measures to... Uh, to speed the process of, of of planning approvals and reduce some of the sort of the red tape around that as well. So um, these little things are, are, are helpful. Um, but I think even though, despite that, I mean, many of us looking at the announcements in the autumn statement will think this is just a, you know, a rehash of some bits of the, you know, the, the Liz Trust quasi quarting uh, growth plan mm -hmm. a year ago, uh, but being implemented much more slowly. So going back to some of the macro issues you talked about at the start, so obviously we've got this sense of what is specifically announced by the Chancellor on the day, but we also get the Office for Budget Responsibilities' latest views on the state of the UK economy. And just despite the kind of upbeat tone from the Chancellor, um, it, diving into those documents is, is a pretty horrifying read. I mean, you start with the, the GDP figures, we're expecting 0% growth this year, 0.7% growth next year. We've got inflation is still expected to remain above target, although uh, that might be overly pessimistic on an inflation front. Um, at the same time, uh, despite the announced cuts in uh, taxes by the government, uh, we're still on track for the highest tax burden in seven yeah. years. The, the tax burden will, will continue to go up for the next um, five years. And that's for that reason you mentioned earlier, which is frozen thresholds for the income tax for every one pound they're giving us in a national insurance cut they're taking four pounds with the other hand through higher income tax seven million people are going to be paying uh, a higher threshold of income tax you know when you when you get into these details it does seem like it's quite a miserable picture from the obr yes yeah, so and there's no criticism there of the obr i think it is reflecting the reality if you look at you know independent forecasts then the numbers for, for GDP growth are actually slightly lower in many cases than the OBR has been forecasting. So the OBR is just telling it um, as it is. <clears throat> Excuse me. As it happens, I, I, I think there are a couple of reasons to be a bit more optimistic than the OBR. One is, as again you hinted at, I think inflation will fall more quickly than the OBR is anticipating, and indeed than most people are anticipating, and that will allow interest rates to, to fall a bit sooner as well. So that's you know several pluses in there for the economy and also for potentially for the public finances too. Um, the second point is um, about productivity. Now, the OBR 
has has got some quite cautious assumptions about productivity factored into its forecast, which is is understandable because you know the OBR had been expecting productivity to recover and and it simply hasn't. Um, but if we can get productivity moving, including by the way productivity in the public sector, which has been you know, one of the worst performing areas here uh, of any part of the economy, then there is scope for the for the economy to grow much more sharply. But that will require a lot more effort, I think, on the on the supply side reforms. It probably require further well targeted uh, well targeted tax cuts, and actually, in a few cases, a bit more public spending as well. I think we do need to invest in uh, better IT in the public sector to to gain all the benefits of um, artificial intelligence and other potential productivity improvements. And uh, you know, fixing the backlog of work in the NHS probably requires a, you know, a bit more spending as well as you know reforming the processes uh, on top of that as well. So we may have to spend a little bit more in the short term there in order to to fix those problems on supply side in the public sector as well. Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that we're, we're at this kind of fundamental crossroads here when it, we're going back to the topic about uh, big government. So a lot of the rhetoric um, immediately after the Chancellor sat down was, well, taxes are on their way up. Um, mm. And I think the reason for that is also because spending is on its way up and growth is extremely low. Um, so even... Uh, if you, you want to cut taxes, you've got to try to find a way to pay for that. You, you Inevitably, you can't just put it on debt. That's just tax delayed sometime into the future. Mm. So we're, I feel like we're, we're almost stuck here, aren't we, Julian, where we've got this kind of relatively low growth, um, relatively uh, high spending, high taxing government. The yeah. Tories are overseeing this and they've overseen a big increase despite their rhetoric and their inclinations because they're not willing to deal with some of the more structural difficult factors. Mm. I mean, the, some fundamental element came to mind here when he's, he, the Chancellor said we're going to increase pensions by 8.5%, huge amount, and, and pensions are going to keep in going up by extraordinary amounts, massive fiscal impact. But also, at the same time, you've got huge increases in spending on welfare for the reasons we've discussed. Um, you've got more spending on healthcare, as we, both as we have an aging population, as well as just the mm-hmm. government decides to put more money into the NHS, despite us not getting any kind of better outcomes out of it all. So I, I feel like we're we're almost trapped here to in a to put forward a more pessimistic view, yeah. where it's very difficult to get out of this situation now that we're in it because taxes are just going to keep going up and growth is going to be stagnant and and the reforms that won't come. Yeah, it, it is it is a a huge problem. And there are no easy answers. I mean, I think there are. A few things that that do need to be done, but these are you know difficult decisions which inevitably we're going to have to wait until after the next election because no government is going to be willing to talk about them, let alone do them now. Um, for example, you, you mentioned pensions. I, I think you know in the longer term, the, the the so-called triple lock on the state pension has to go. Um, it's just going to otherwise it just we're going to spend an ever increasing proportion of national income on the state pension, which doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, health and social care uh, needs fundamental reform. Um, this isn't just about the NHS, and uh, you know I, I would say that the NHS would be a lot better if it had more competition, uh, more private finance, and, and private provision. Um, it's also about health care, um, and I'm particularly aware of the pressure of, of aging in terms of the need for dementia care. At the moment, we have a, a failed market there. It's, it's impossible to ensure. Um, against the the need to uh, get dementia care in in the future in the private market because it's too expensive to do so. That's maybe something the government could look at 
uh, trying to, to help fix in one way or another. So there are, there, there are a number of things that we can do ar around pensions and, and health and, and, and social care. Um, the other thing I think to, to stress is that in the short term, sometimes you do have to recognize the need to borrow a little bit more. Um, now, I think we've now reached the limits of that. But if you were to say to me that the government is going to have a policy of, uh, broadly speaking, uh, borrowing, say, 3% of GDP per year, so 3% of national income, in order to invest in, in better public services and, and infrastructure, uh, and then balance the rest of the budget. So in other words, we have an overall budget deficit of 3 or 4% of GDP. I, I would be reasonably happy with that, um, particularly because as long as the economy is growing at three to four percent included the impact of inflation so that's two percent real maybe two percent inflation that's still enough to stabilize the debt to gdp ratio or, or get it falling so i think we need to be realistic about how much we can do uh in terms of, of balancing the overall budget as long as borrowing is low and limited to borrowing to invest then i think we shouldn't obsess too much about what the annual budget deficit is from year to year well, Julian Jessup, IEA Economics Friday, thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. It's been a fascinating and enlightening conversation as always. If you're enjoying the podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider or on the IEA's YouTube channel. Um, please also, if you want to learn more about the IEA's work and analysis, you can just visit iea.org.uk.